Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for today is taken from our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 63 with an emphasis on these words. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is our text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. In William Shakespeare's famous play, The Merchant of Venice, the titular merchant, Antonio, defaults on a loan to a moneylender named Shylock, who, holding a grudge against Antonio for his previous harsh treatment and anti-Semitic remarks, pursues from him in court a pound of flesh as retribution. Antonio had taken the loan to assist his friend Bassiano in his courtship of the wealthy and beautiful heiress of Belmont, the Lady Portia. When Antonio experiences a series of misfortunes which prevent him from repaying Shylock, Bassiano sails back to Venice to repay the loan on behalf of his friend, along with Lady Portia's servant, the lawyer Balthazar. At Bassiano's return, Shylock refuses his offer to pay double the amount of the loan to spare Antonio, insisting instead that physical retribution must be made. The climax of the play takes place in court, where it appears certain that the merchant Antonio will lose his case and be made to suffer Shylock's dagger. Suddenly, the lawyer identified previously as Balthazar enters the court at the behest of the Duke of Venice, wishing to save Antonio. In truth, the lawyer Balthazar is none other than a cleverly disguised Lady Portia, wishing to secure a favorable outcome for her husband's friend. Still disguised, Portia enters a plea directly to Shylock appealing to him in a speech which has, since its composition, become known as one of Shakespeare's finest passages. This speech, entitled The Quality of Mercy, reads as follows. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the enthroned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. Dear friends, it is now one week after the celebration of Christmas, and looking at our gospel reading, you might be forgiven for seeing in it neither justice nor mercy. Shortly after the Incarnation, we hear the awful tale of the wicked King Herod the Great, and his craven lust for power, which led him to commit one of the worst atrocities in Jewish or Christian history. St. Matthew recounts that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This travesty, perpetrated by Herod, 
has come to be known in the church as the Massacre of the Holy Innocents, and it is observed frequently with a service of commemoration remembering those who were martyred in the name of Christ. As we read it today, we're presented with a series of rather jarring contrasts. While just last week we announced peace on earth and sang Silent Night at Jesus' birth in our beautiful candlelit sanctuary, the very next passage we come to sees little children slaughtered for their passive association with him, and he and his family forced to flee to Egypt. Going back in time a step further, and we might remember the proclamation of the great Advent season, where we heard the mighty prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, how he would come and judge the nations in righteousness, how he would proclaim good news to the captives, lift up the lowly, cast the mighty down from their thrones, and clear his threshing floor. Go back yet further, and you might find yourself at our Old Testament lesson for today from the prophecy of Isaiah, who in this chapter paints a picture of Israel's Redeemer by calling to mind the great mercies God showed his people of old, how he rescued them, how he raised up his servant Moses to lead them, how he dealt patiently and compassionately with them despite their rebellion. Now the Christ, prophesied to God's people, was coming to complete his great mercy and to raise his people up again. But then we have Herod and the senseless slaughter of innocent children, even in the days of Christ's coming to redeem Israel. Israel, it seems, was utterly lost, so lost that those who might have received him with joy and with song sought instead to kill him in the cradle. Herod's ambition was not salvation, but power, and at the altar of such ambition spilt the blood of those holy innocents, those little children, for the price of power in a world soiled by sin is blood. You who have heard this story before likely knew better than to expect mercy from a tyrant like Herod. But what about from God? Was the irony of life being snuffed out in its infancy when the Christ walked the earth lost on God? Could not the God who dealt compassionately with his foolish, rebellious children have also not spared a pittance for those little ones whose cries were so cruelly silenced? If mercy is to be an attribute of God himself, then the Christian must ask, What manner of mercy is this that lets Rachel weep for her children while King Herod sits perched on lofty throne? In answer to this question, we must turn back to Isaiah. For that Christ, who Isaiah prophesied, who was spared Herod's sword, was the same one of whom the prophet spoke, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yes, the God of Israel, who heard their cries of affliction and who redeemed them, came Christmas Day to redeem not just Israel, but all men, all women, all children, even those whose eyes were closed in death before the day of his atonement at Calvary, before his suffering and death on the cross, and before his resurrection from the dead. The salvation of Christ Jesus is not just good for those alive to witness him, but for all who died before and all who would die after. This includes those little ones slain by Herod. Therefore, 
Though we hear this story, and rightly mourn these children, we do not pity them. For they too were children of promise, and were privileged to be among the firstborn to see God's promise of salvation fulfilled in Christ Jesus appearing. As St. John the Evangelist records, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And St. Paul in his letter to the Philippians, To live is Christ, to die is gain. As we begin a new year this day, it is always with a mixture of hope and skepticism. Skepticism because we live in a sinful world where each new day is fraught with dangers of all kinds. In our sin, we daily bring upon ourselves damnation and judgment. Like wicked Herod, we too lust for power. We too chase after false gods of our own imagining. We too suffer the most vulnerable among us to make ourselves great. Rebelling and grieving his spirit, God's justice burns fiercely against our transgressions, and, to quote Shakespeare, in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. Thus do we pray each year for mercy, that God would deal with us not according to his justice, but according to mercy. Yet, as we do so plea, we also rejoice. For the quality of God's mercy is such that he would willingly do that which King Herod did try in vain, to put the Christ to death. But because God is compassionate, the Christ goes to the cross to die, not in a craven ploy for power, nor in some travesty of justice, but no, our God seasons his justice with mercy. As Jesus suffers and dies, he takes on himself that justice which ought to have been leveled against us. And so, in the justice of his death, we are made to see salvation. God now speaks to us, as he once spoke to Israel through the voice of the prophet. Christ has become our Savior. In all our affliction, Christ was afflicted, and Christ's presence has saved us. In his love and in his pity, Christ has redeemed us. Christ lifts us up and carries us in this day and in all days to come. Therefore, in every new day, we have the confidence to stand before the mercy seat of our God and Father, imploring him for the sake of his only begotten Son to remember all his promises to us. In this new year, be it then resolved that we, redeemed by Christ, enthrone that mercy shown us by his suffering and death in our own hearts also. For each day we cry out for deliverance from our affliction, God answers us in Christ. Each day that we beg our tears of sorrow be dried, God answers us in Christ. Each day that we suffer pain and loss as a consequence for our sin, and each day that we pray God be compassionate, still he answers us in Christ. Every time we come into his holy house to hear Christ crucified for us, God demonstrates in no uncertain terms the quality of his mercy. And so doing, he teaches us to, re to render in kind deeds of mercy to our neighbor, that they may come in all their affliction to hear Christ as we have heard, and so rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.